All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, Before we get into our text this morning, I want to pose the question, why does Jesus' life matter? Why does Jesus' life matter? I think everybody knows why Jesus' death matters, because we have the concept in our heads of the great substitution that takes place on the cross. We understand that Jesus died for us in our place, that He's taking the wrath of God for sin that we deserved, and He's doing that in Himself, in His own body, in His own flesh on the cross. But why, why is life? Why does Jesus' life matter? Why not just be born full-grown and have the cross happen the next day? Why the life of Jesus? Why does it matter? See, as we're considering the life of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, we've noted over and over and over that Jesus is replaying Israel's history, hitting all of the major events and emulating all of the major figures from Old Testament Israelite history. Israel came out of Egypt, Jesus comes out of Egypt. Israel's tempted in the desert, Jesus is tempted in the desert. Israel crosses the Jordan to take over the land and to kick out the enemy. Jesus crosses the Jordan in baptism and begins to kick the enemy out of the land through his exercising ministry. All obviously circumstantial allusions to Israel's national story, which Jesus is replaying himself. Only... In the first iteration of this story of Israel, it was marred by Israel's sin and infidelity. Whereas Jesus, the true Israel, endures each phase of this historical replay sinlessly and faithfully. But to our question, why does any of that matter? Why does any of that matter? Was Jesus just giving us a fun literary exercise that we'd be able to engage in later where we can look at at the text and see parallels and allusions and feel really smart for having read the book where the actually smart guy told us that that's what was going on? Is that what this is about? Is this just a literary exercise that we could see the richness and connectivity of Scripture? Or is all of this meant to accomplish something? Does it do anything? Is it material and not just ethereal and theological? The answer, of course, as you already know, is it is material and it does accomplish something. You see, Jesus isn't just replaying Israel's history. He is rewriting it. He's rewriting it. And he's establishing a new history in which we too can be caught up. Jesus is doing what he's doing for Israel and in her place as her covenant head or representative. That's what's going on. Jesus is living for Israel so that Israel might find her life in him. And this is good news for us because the New Testament teaches that we Gentiles get grafted into Israel, that is, into Christ, such that his life and his history becomes our life and our history. Now, if all this still sounds abstract and impractical, nothing could be further from the truth because Jesus living for you and for me is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. He lives for us in our place. He dies for us in our 
place. The reason that it's so important to understand that Jesus is replaying Israel's history, rewriting it as our head, is because without him doing so, we would be left with Adam as our covenant head and representative. Those are the two options. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. That's it. Those are the options. Without Christ, we'd be left in and repeating Adam's history on a loop over and over with no escape because you cannot get out of your breeding, so to speak. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. So you can be left repeating Adam's history or you can have Christ's history that you can then live out. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is either in and from Adam or they are in and from Christ. Those are the only two family lines to which you can be tethered. You see, we live in a representational world in which the actions of our head, our leader, our representative necessarily determines the outcome of our lives with the history of our head determining the history of our individual lives. This is how this whole thing works in God's world. God deals with individuals corporately. That is, on the basis of who our father is, who our family is, what family we're a part of. That's how God deals with his people. Not just as individuals, but as individuals who are attached to something else. And he deals with us on the basis of our attachments. Who's your dad? What family are you a part of? That's how God deals with us. Now, our American individualism chafes against this idea. A doctrine formerly known as the doctrine of original sin, which says that Adam's history determined our history. But while we may chafe against this idea, without it there is no gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't like the idea that because of what Adam did, our first father, that we're all damned. We hate that idea, don't we? That because of what one guy, who by the way is not the individual that is me, because of what one guy did at the beginning of creation, I messed up, but I didn't do it. How does what Adam did have any impact or effect on me? But of course, Scripture teaches that it does. It says, we are in and from Adam, and as such, we are wicked, rebellious, and dead in our sins and trespasses upon arrival. Upon arrival. It's not that we grow into this. It is that we are born into this. Which is why Haddon, my 48-hour-year-old, no, you can't say hour-year-old, 48-hour-old son, is a wicked, rebellious sinner. That's what he is. A blessing from the Lord who is wonderfully sweet and woefully wicked. You know how I know that? Because I, I've had four before him. And, I, and my wife and I have had to teach our children absolutely everything except how to sin against us. They required no instruction in that category. Why? Because that is hardwired. It's hardwired because their father, Adam, passed down his history to them, which they are literally doomed and damned to repeat 
unless and until they are acted upon by another father and given another head and made a part of another family. See, our problem in all of this is not that we do bad things. It is that we are, back to confession, bad people. That's the problem. It's who we are and what we are that's the issue. We're sinners. That's our nature. That problem is not just that we do certain wicked or rebellious things. The problem is that we are wicked rebels and we like it that way. That's our problem. We're wicked rebels and we like it. But how did we get that way? How did that happen? Well, according to Scripture, it's because Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And he did it as our head, as our leader, as our representative, such that his actions had consequences for all of the rest of us. But there's something in us as individualistic Americans that protests that as an injustice, right? There's something in us that kind of wells up and says, how is that fair? I remember going through several weeks of doubting the Christian faith while I was a college student. And the heart of that doubt was the doctrine of original sin because I could not wrap my head around the justice of that, around the equity of that. And I mean that in like the traditional sense, not in the like nonsensical 21st century use of that word, which doesn't actually mean equity at all. I mean the actual kind that the Psalms talk about. Actual justice, actual fairness. I remember asking my theology professors, how is it fair for God to be angry with me for my sins when the Bible teaches me that I was born into them? How can he be angry about something that I can't help? Isn't that a little bit like being angry at a congenitally, mentally handicapped person for their disability? The Bible's going to say, you're born a sinner. You're born wicked and rebellious, which is why you do wicked and rebellious things. It's not going to say that you choose to do wicked and rebellious things for no real reason at all. It's going to say, no, you choose those things because you're bound to those things because you are your nature. And what is your nature except the one that was given to you because of Adam's fall, except a corrupted nature? Obviously, you know about the debates, you know, free will, God's sovereignty, whatever. And people always have these debates like, you know, did you choose? Did God choose? How's that all working? It's like, look, you have to define free will properly. A will is free to do that which is consistent with its nature. That's what free will is. Your will is free to do that which is consistent with its nature. And what does the Bible say about your nature and mine? It says we're slaves to sin. So yeah, you got free will. Your will is totally free to do whatever the nature of that will is. Which for you and me is a sinful one. Unless and until we are acted upon by someone outside of us to regenerate us, to give us a new heart, to make us a new person with a new history, with a new family. And so we have to, to feel the tension of that, given the air that we breathe culturally. Like, how is it fair for God to be angry with us 
for, call it what you want, a, a, a congenital defect. You're saying, I was born this way, and I'm accountable for the fact that I was born that way. How is that just? And, and we're talking about nothing less than that, because our problem, again, is not individual sins that we commit. Our problem is that we are sinners. Our problem is that we love sin and we hate God by nature. And God will damn us to hell for it, because that's where that nature belongs. So why are we responsible for our sin if it's only the outworking of our nature and we're not in control of the nature with which we were born? Well, the answer is that Adam was our representative head. And we were represented well. Because what he did in the garden is representative of what we would have done had we been there. What he did is representative of what we would have done had we been there. And only the most arrogant and self-righteous among us would deny such a thing. No, no, if it were me and Heather in that garden, I'd have crushed the head of that serpent. No, no. I'd have been like, you know what, babe, that does look pretty good. You go first. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? Let's be honest. What Adam and Eve did is representative of what you and your spouse would have done if you'd have been there. You'd have been the cowardly simp that sank behind your wife and you were like, yeah, let's see what happened. Oh, it was good? I was good. That's what would happen. Adam's guilt is our guilt because he was representing us. And as he fell... So all who are born of him are born fallen. As Paul puts it, in Adam all die. That is, all of Adam's children are born into Adam's death. And just for the sake of <clears throat> excuse me, clarity, since we're doing theology this morning, let's talk briefly about what that death is. That death comes in the form of alienation or separation. You see, the day that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died. And that death took place immediately, spiritually and covenantally, even as it worked itself out over time, physically. This is, this is death that happens to Adam, immediately and eventually. Adam was alienated from God, will enumerate the ways now. He's alienated from God and removed from the garden where he had free and uninhibited access to the Holy of Holies. There's the first bit of alienation. Here's God. You can walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. And it's you and me face to face together. No, not anymore. Alienation. It's the death of separation. It's the death of alienation. No more access to the Holy of Holies. Get out of the garden sanctuary that is Eden. And we are, as Adam's children, born into that alienation, aren't we? That's why we relate to God so distantly and dysfunctionally. That's why prayer is so hard for you. Right? You ever tried to spend more than like two and a half minutes in prayer? <laughs> Man, I can take somewhere. Why is it so hard to spend meaningful time with our Creator? It's because you're a son of Adam. You get this sense that you don't actually belong in the Holy of Holies, and because you're made uncomfortable there, it's really easy to get distracted and want to go somewhere else. 
That's why. That's an effect of this fall. Another way that Adam was killed, alienated, dead, is that he's alienated from nature. You see this happening almost immediately in the narrative. In Adam, humanity became separated from nature's intended uses, and we became masters of misuse, taking all the things that God made to bless us and using it to kill ourselves and others. Right? God makes it good, we get it in our hands, and we use it poorly. What is that? It's him being alienated from nature itself, no longer capable or inclined toward its proper use. And instead, all these things that God made good, we find ways to corrupt and make destructive. Next, we see that Adam was alienated from his fellow humans. That's why Adam goes from writing poetry about Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It should be called woman. It's very clear in the Hebrew, I'm told, which I don't read, but I'm told by the scholars. It's very clear that this is a poem. So he goes from writing sonnets for Eve to throwing her under the bus, doesn't he? That woman you gave me. You mean the one that you were just... Singing Backstreet Boys songs about five minutes ago? That, that, that's the one you're now rolling over? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what's going on. And, and don't our own relationships bear witness to the fact that we were born into that alienation? Because how riddled are they with strife and contention? Where'd that come from? It's part of Adam's death. It's that alienation, and it plagues our own relationships to this day. Finally, Adam was dead in that he was alienated even from himself. He's alienated even from himself. You see, he was now drawn toward all manner of evils which produced shame in him because he still bore the image of God that said, don't do that, don't go in that direction, but now marred and stained by sin and with a fallen nature, he's alienated from who he actually is. He's got this image of God which tells him, don't do that. And yet, the impulse is so strong, he's going to do it anyway. And what happens when he does it anyway? Shame and guilt. Which plagues every human heart and conscience ubiquitously. Because he's alienated from who he actually is. Because while he's got a vestige of that image of God and knows right from wrong, knows when he's been sinned against and knows when he's sinned, he can't seem to be who he knows in the back of his mind or in the depth of his heart he should be. And he can't be that. He can't be that. He's incapable of being that because his nature demands that he rebel against God. Because he's alienated from who he was originally created to be as God's image. This is the death of Adam. This is the alienation into which we are all born because of what Adam did. Because Adam, head, representative, leader. All the ways that Adam died are all the ways that you and I were born into death. His death was our death, and we live in the alienation that his works have won for us. Are you encouraged yet this morning? (laughs) The first Adam and his history and our history in him is something that we're all repeating. We're all constantly reliving this history, aren't we? 
It's why as we're talking about the ways that Adam was alienated, you can think of the names, people, instances, and circumstances in which you've experienced that same alienation. It's because you're his kid. You've lived life in Adam. But thanks be to God that another Adam has come and he has written an alternative history that he holds out to you and to me. Christ is another representative head, offering us a new birth into a new covenantal family, complete with a new family history that we can now live out. That's why, to take the long way to the answer to the question, the life of Christ matters. That's why the life of Christ matters so much. That's why these replays that we're looking at in the Gospel of Matthew matter so much because they're more than simply replays. They're rewrites. They're revisions. They're, if you will, recreations. Holding out something new. Here's a new head, a new representative, a new family line, a new history. Would you like it? Because the old one sucks. Would you like it? This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The actions of our first head damned us. The actions of our second head save us. And that is, again, preeminently why Jesus' life matters. You'll be familiar with the fact that modern people love to look at Jesus as simply being a compelling moral philosopher who sets a good example for us to follow. But if that's all that Jesus is doing, then he did nothing that we needed and added little that we didn't already have. If he's just showing us how it ought to be done and then leaving it up to us to do it, then we're all still damned. If he's just, yeah, here's the right way to live. Now go do it. Well, here's the problem. You already knew the right way to live because the law is written on your heart and you break it every day anyway. Our problem is not educational. Our problem is moral. It's who I am. It's what I love. And it's what I want to do that is the problem. Those are the things that need to be changed, not information. I need a new heart, not new information. I need good news, as it's been said, not good advice. The world is full of good advice, life hacks, and how-tos. The problem is I'm too sinful to actually employ any of them for longer than two and a half minutes before I'm at the end of my discipline and willpower and sinning again. This is our great problem. We love sin, we hate God, and that's because those are the family values that we inherited from Adam. Because Jesus is giving us what we need, his life and ministry is not primarily educational or illustrative, or here's a good example to follow. No, it's him rewriting our history and offering to us something new. He was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, namely living faithfully before God as the representative head for mankind and starting in himself a new humanity to supplant the old one. We need to be new creatures with new hearts, a new head, a new nature, and a new family so that we can be severed from Adam's family and cease from perpetuating the death and alienation that characterize it. That's what we That's what we need. That's what Christ offers. That's what we're watching him do as we look at these replays of Israel's history in the Lord Jesus himself. What does he do? He's saying, here's the history in Adam. And it's failure after failure after failure after failure. Uh, It's just on a loop. Here's another failure. Here's another. Who's going to break that cycle and give us something new? Matthew says, found him. 
is the Lord Jesus. Every place that you and I, Israel before us, failed, Christ succeeds and is victorious. And he does that not so we'd have a good example to follow, but so that we would have a new head. Such that the merits of his work get credited to our account in the same way that the merits of Adam's were. This is the good news of the gospel. Every faithful replay that we see is faithfulness for us and in our place so that all of the benefits that Christ earns from his obedience might be our benefits. Because again, just like Adam's disobedience was our disobedience, in God's indescribable kindness, Christ's obedience becomes our obedience. So, with the longest sermon prologue in Christ Church history now concluded, we'll go to Matthew chapter 14. <laughs> go to Matthew chapter 14. I had to tell you all those things because today we look at another replay of Israel's history. And I don't want you guys to get to the point where you're scratching your heads like, okay, I mean, that's an interesting literary observation that you've made. But what does it matter? Everything that we just talked about is why it matters. That's not just a replay, it's a rewrite for you that changes your own history. All right, so Matthew chapter 14, let me begin in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded that it be given. He sent and, John, and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. So Herod is here introduced to us in this narrative. And this is not, so that we're clear, this is not the Herod that we met at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. That was Herod the Great who slaughtered the Hebrew baby boys trying to kill Jesus. This is that Herod's son. That Herod's son. The Herod that we meet is attached to a pretty complicated Herodian family where the kingdom kind of got divided up between different brothers who bear this, uh, effectively this title, Herod, but ruled different subsets and different sections of the kingdom. Now this Herod that's introduced to us by Matthew as, quote, the Tetrarch is a term that originally referred to a ruler of a quarter of a kingdom. But by this point in the first century, that term had really become kind of backhanded. It was a way of referring to a petty ruler who ruled a dependent state. 
And so this was, this was used really as, as a backhand of, oh, yeah, 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 the, the tetrarch in place of, like, king, right? Because you're a much smaller ruler ruling a dependent state under the thumb of a much greater power. Matthew's language around Herod here is intended to be diminutive and dismissive. He's being backhanded. Matthew has just given us the king's kingdom parables in chapter 13. You'll remember all of that. And now what he's doing is he's contrasting King Jesus with another, air quote, king. It's a contrast between the true king and King Herod. Because in comparison to Christ, every other king is a king, air quotes. Every other king is a tetrarch in comparison to the kingship and kingdom of Christ. You see, Herod is what every other king and kingdom is becoming as Christ's kingdom grows. You see, as Christ's kingdom grows, what necessarily has to happen to everybody else's territory except that it shrinks? In the same way that as Roman power grew, what happened to, Her- to, to Herod's kingdom? It gets smaller and smaller and smaller and to the point that you can't even call that guy a king. You've got to call him a tetrarch. That's how you can insult political leaders that you don't like. They won't even understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Tetrarch Cooper over here. <laughs> their kingdoms and their authority are ever shrinking because they're Tetrarchs. They're petty rulers of conquered peoples who are not truly sovereign, but are rather accountable to a higher kingdom and her king. This is what all of the kings of the earth are in relation to Christ, and Matthew is highlighting it here in the way that he introduces Herod right after the king talking about his kingdom. If the kingdom of Christ is ever growing and expanding like leaven in the dough, then as I've said, the kingdoms of man are ever shrinking in their power and authority. Now, in verse 2, we're told that Herod hears about Jesus' ministry. And when he hears about what's going on with the Lord Jesus, he actually thinks that it's John. He actually thinks that it's John the Baptist who is doing all of these miracles and who has amassed this following. He thinks John has come back from the dead. Now, I want to pose the question, what would cause him to think, you know what? I bet John's back. I bet that's what happened. I'm going to say... Herod has a guilty conscience for the murder of John the Baptist. Such that when he hears about some figure who's amassed this following, who's doing all these miraculous things, he's thinking, oh no, he's back to get me. Herod's got a guilty conscience. There's an anxiety and a fear that's looming over his soul because of this unconfessed and unrepentant sin. You see, sin will always do that to you until you either repent and are cleansed or until you just sever the nerve endings, sear them to the point of being paralyzed and incapable of feeling. You know, you can, you can sin your way to a seared conscience, right? Just no longer feel like that's wrong. It's no longer hear the Holy Spirit's voice. You can sin your way to that. And silence it forever. We can see from the way that Matthew's narrative unfolds that Herod actually didn't want 
to kill John, or at least he had major reservations about doing so. Did you notice that in, in, in Matthew's account? It's Herod's wife, Herodias, who wanted John dead. But Herod, as verse 9 of chapter 14 tells us, was actually distressed by the request for his head. He, 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 didn't, he didn't want to do that. Mark's account of this actually gives us even more insight into Herod's disposition towards John. This will be helpful for us interpretively. Here's what Mark tells us. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So Herod takes his brother's wife. This is unlawful, biblically, and it certainly should not be done even outside of express biblical law. Most pagans would probably agree, your brother's wife, that's, that's off limits. John, of course, being John, has the audacity to say, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod, listen to this, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Now, notice that. It, it doesn't say that he feared John because he had a lot of influence. It says that he feared him specifically because he was able to see the righteousness and holiness of John. And it was something that while he wanted to keep it at a distance, he respected. He doesn't want to kill him because of his righteousness and his holiness. And in fact, it says in Mark's account that Herod kept John safe. Herod kept John safe. Apparently, that's one of the reasons for his imprisonment, because that was a way that Herod could make sure that John remained safe. Very interesting. Last sentence in this account from Mark. When he, Herod, heard him, John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? He's got this kind of fraught relationship with John the Baptist. Herod was a man who's limping between two decisions, to use Old Testament language about it. He had an affinity toward the message that John preached because viscerally he felt the weight and the truth of it, but the cost of repentance was too high for him to pay. So it's like, that, that rings true for me what you're saying. That message even has some allurement to me. To repent, the baptism of repentance, which John was preaching. And we already know from this account, he's got a guilty conscience. He wants what everyone wants, which is to be justified and cleansed and reckoned as righteousness. To have the burden of sin lifted. Of course he wants that. So there's something in John's message that he's attracted to and drawn to. But when it comes down to brass tacks, okay, well, confess your sins and repent. Oh, well, that's more costly than I anticipated it would be. He listened to John and he enjoyed him because, again, the message rang true. But when it was time for obedience, he resisted. And, of course, I'd be missing low-hanging pastoral fruit if I didn't ask the question, how many of us are like Herod at precisely that point? We want to have a hard-hitting prophet in the pulpit, don't we? Who will say what needs to be said, who's not going to polish things up too much. We want to have that guy around. Because, you know, yeah, that's helpful. Sometimes he says things that are intriguing to me. I want to I keep that kind of voice around in my bullpen of other voices to which I listen. But ultimately, I'm going to stop short of obeying what that hard-hitting prophet says. I'll go listen to him every Sunday, though, because sometimes he says things in a pretty compelling way. So I'm going to go listen to him. I'll get my hour in. And then you know what I'm going to do? Whatever it is I want. 
That's what I'm going to do. This is, think, something that is taken over the American church because we have cults of personality with people who string sentences together compellingly. And it really becomes about the experience that you might have on a Sunday morning when somebody is singing or preaching. And we all want that experience, don't we? We want that experience, but, but how wonderfully convenient for we microwave Americans to be able to condense what I need morally and spiritually into an hour, and then to be able to compartmentalize that and not actually have to do anything meaningful about anything that happened to that hour Monday through Saturday. How wonderfully convenient for modern American morality, which is why we often have with our pastors the same kind of relationship that John the Baptist and Herod had. Oh, yeah, I want to keep the guy around. I'll even write a check to make sure he can continue to say those compelling things. But am I going to leave my house all the way that guy was talking about? Unlikely. Unlikely. Oh, am I going to stop living with that girl and shacking up because we're not married? Probably not going to do that. But sometimes he'll occasionally tell a joke that is funny. So I'm going to come back. Yeah. This is a modern American Christianity. With this scene, Matthew's telling us where we are in the replay of Israel's history as well. He's always doing more than one thing at a time in a given text. He's telling us what's happening, and he's telling us what that thing is attached to. We're coming out of actually the Solomonic reign period of Matthew's gospel, and we're walking into the divided kingdom section. In chapter 13, Matthew was presenting Jesus, actually. I didn't draw attention to it, but he's presenting Jesus as the greater Solomon. That's what he's doing in chapter 13. Because who is Jesus except the son of David? And what is he doing except presenting truth in riddles? Like what genre of Scripture? Well, Ecclesiastes most notably, but also Proverbs. And who wrote those? Well, Solomon, the son of David. He's speaking in Solomonic fashion as the son of David, having kingly discourses about the kingdom. What's Matthew telling us? Saying, aha, we're, that's where we are in Israel's history. This is the Solomonic reign. And so that's where we were in chapter 13. The new and greater Solomon preparing to build a new and greater kingdom and temple. But now we're into the kingdom's fall which happened historically after Solomon's reign and because of Solomon's sin. A bit of history that Jesus is in the process of rewriting for him, as it were, because under this son of David, there will be no divided kingdom due to sin. The only divisions that happen in the kingdom under Christ are divisions of righteousness, where those who would mar the kingdom are removed from it. So how do we know where we are in Matthew's gospel here. How do we know what period we've entered into? I said that we're coming out of the Solomonic period into the divided kingdom period, and how do we know that? Well, we know because what we have before us in the verses just read is a weak-willed king led by his wicked and assertive wife who uses her power over her husband to work toward the death of a prophet. Any Old Testament Bible readers who are having their wheels turning right now thinking, I've seen that before. In a very notable chapter, in a very notable book, I've seen an Ahab, I've seen a Jezebel, and I've seen that Jezebel manipulating her husband Ahab to go after a prophet who I hate because he said things against me that I didn't like and I wanted to see him dead. 
His name was Elijah. And who's John in the New Testament except the Elijah who was to come, who now we find out in Matthew's Gospel has his own Ahab and Jezebel. They're just named Herod and Herodias. It's the same scene here being replayed, or as it were, rewritten. This shows us that Jesus himself is going to go into an Elisha period following Elijah. And this is indicated to us by the fact, we'll get into this next week, but this is indicated to us by the fact that he then engages in the kinds of miracles that are indicative of Elisha's ministry, as we'll see when he feeds the 5,000, which if you know Elisha well, food miracles were kind of his thing. But that's where we are in the replay of Israel's history as Jesus rewrites it in himself, this time making it with absolute faithfulness. And again, this is for us, on our behalf, for our sake, that he's reversing the faithlessness of Adam. And now, having seen the gospel import of this passage and Matthew's theology in it, and having oriented ourselves in where Matthew has us in redemptive history, we'll come to the practical lessons that we learn from it. We've got three of them for us this morning. The first lesson is about slavery to sin. The second is about how sin manifests itself in a man versus a woman. And the third is about the impact that our sin has on our children. So three practical lessons for us to glean. The first on slavery to sin. Jesus has been talking about his kingdom in chapter 13. And it's being contrasted, as I've mentioned, with the kings and kingdoms of man here in chapter 14. And one of the threads that's running through Matthew chapter 13 that could be missed is confident hope. There's a thread of confident hope in Matthew chapter 13, which is here contrasted with Herod's insecurity and fear. Because one kingdom produces confidence and hope, every other kingdom produces insecurity and fear. There's a confident hope that's bound up in our belonging to the kingdom of Christ because his kingdom and reign is forever. What's Isaiah say? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Every other kingdom, however, is in the process of dying or being subsumed under Christ's kingdom. The kingdoms of men are all based on works, and thus they run on fear and insecurity. Because anything that's based on your work, your effort, your ability to maintain necessarily produces a culture and an atmosphere of fear and anxiety. Because if it's your work that builds it, guess what can happen? Somebody else's work could take it from you. Or you could simply run out of steam and fail. You see, the kingdoms of man don't have grace and they don't have redemption. They just have fear, which is precisely what's gripped Herod. This comes to us more clearly in, in Mark's account, but he uses that fear over and over. Herod is afraid of everybody. Like fear just marks who Herod is. He feared the people. He feared John. He feared his wife. He oozes fear and insecurity, and for good reason. Because nothing that he has is stable, certain, or secure, because it's all up to him to hang on to it. Now, truthfully, those things are just the logical outworking of how he's operating and the kingdom that he's a part of. In the kingdoms of man, nothing is given, everything is earned. So fear and insecurity are just features of man's rule. 
But Jesus' kingdom is a gift that runs on grace. He secures the kingdom and he secures our place in that kingdom. And he gives it to us as a gift of his grace based on his work, not ours. We're not fighting to hang on to it. We're not fighting to be approved by anyone. We're not striving to earn anything. Our work is fueled by God's grace, not by fear of losing something or the fear of failing to achieve something. It changes everything. All I need is already promised and is as good as delivered in Christ, so I work from that rest. That's actually what fuels my work, is my rest in Christ. I work to lay hold of those things which are already mine in Him. But because Herod is in Adam and not in Christ, he's a slave to sin, though he's supposed to be a king. And you can see his slavery to these things. It's evident in the text, isn't it? You can see his slavery to his passions as he foolishly offers up half of his kingdom in exchange for a sexual favor that will only last him five minutes. You see the slavery to sin that he finds himself in. And he's a slave to people's opinions. There's something made clear to us in the text. There's what Herod wants to do and what he thinks he ought to do. And then there's what he actually does because of the peer pressure of those who are around him. Because he's a slave to everything down here. Because he's not been freed and made a citizen of what is up there. That's what's happening in Herod. Remember, he doesn't want to execute John, but because of the pressure from his wife and the pressure of his public vow in front of all of these people, that's the kind of tyranny that unrepentant sinners live under constantly. They make foolish trades to satisfy their passions. And then once the euphoria of the moment wears off, they, like Herod in verse 9, are sorry about the trade that they have made. The only way out of that slavery and fear is to get out of Adam and into Christ. Second lesson is on masculine and feminine manifestations of sin. Masculine and feminine manifestations of sin. That God made us male and female, and we sin in male and female ways. Herod's sin is that of weakness and passivity as, he, as he's led around by a woman and the whims of a crowd. You can see that's what's happening to Herod, right? He's led by a woman, his wife, and the whims of a crowd. Men aren't supposed to be led by women in crowds. They're supposed to lead them. That's what a man was built for. Weakness and passivity in a man, as we see in Herod, are vices, while strength and leadership are virtues. But just the opposite is true for women. Just the opposite is true for women. Weakness and passivity are feminine virtues as she acknowledges and embraces the fact that she is the weaker vessel and she shows deference to those male heads who are over her. In fact, Scripture says this is her glory to do so because she's not trying to act like a man. All women ever do when they try to take on masculine postures is they are bad men, which dims their glory. It does not highlight it. So you can be a second-rate man, or you can be a first-class woman. It's your glory. Now, in this narrative, Herod is the soft, submissive one, and his wife, Herodias, is the hard, assertive one who's bending the world to her will. See, they've reversed roles, even as we saw in the Garden of Eden. There was a role reversal. 
they reverse roles, and as we can see, every time that role reversal occurs, tragedy, like the one in our narrative, takes place. Every time you see those roles reverse, here's a woman who's putting herself in the position of a man, or a man putting himself in the position of a woman, there is a uniform consequence, and it's tragedy. When weak men rule, innocent people suffer and die. And as unpopular as it is to say, much of that death happens at the behest of women. Much of that death happens at the behest of women who are the ones who are pulling the strings of the weak men. When weak men rule, innocent people suffer and die, and much of that death happens at the behest of women. In our day and time, weak men, as you know, certainly rule, which allows assertive women to murder. And yes, I'm talking about abortion. Yes, I'm talking about abortion. In the United States of America, female murderers outnumber male ones by a count I'm bad at math or I'd tell you. There are far more feminine murderers than there are masculine murderers. Women murder in our country because weak men are in power, just as happened in Matthew chapter 14. But they murder like women. Herodias doesn't just go to John's cell and butcher him, does she? No. She's a woman. What does a woman need if she's going to commit a murder, generally speaking? She's going to need a weak man who can be manipulated into doing her will. This is a particular feminine sin. And that's just one example. Sadly, I don't have time to offend you any further on that point, but I trust that you can follow it out. So let's move to the third practical lesson here. That one's just to say, be on guard for specifically masculine sins. Look for your weakness and passivity, men, and work to correct it. And for women, look for your assertiveness and leadership and repent of it. Right? That's point two. Three is about our sin and our children. See, if you've thought that this, or if you, rather, if you've thought this passage through, if you're processing what's, what's happening in this text, then you're probably appalled at what Herodias does to her daughter. Has anybody been thinking about that? As I read through that text, you can see what she does to her own daughter in order to accomplish her wicked ends. Herodias implicates her daughter. A young woman named Salome, whom scholars believe was probably between the ages of 12 and 16. Between the ages of 12 and 16. And Herodias implicates her in her sin and shapes and warps her soul in the process. Herodias is willing to sacrifice her child as a sex object in order to accomplish her goals. And modern women are willing to kill their children in order to accomplish their goals. We're back to abortion, in case anybody was wondering what that reference was about. <laughs> How can I possibly become junior assistant manager of my company if I have this baby to take care of? Just kill it. Just kill it. Let's shatter the glass ceiling by throwing babies into it till it breaks. 
Modern women are also willing to sacrifice their children as sex objects in order to gain social standing and acclaim in our culture. You know the number of fathers in our country right now who are fighting in the courts to keep their ex-wives from transitioning their children? Look it up. Look it up. When weak men rule, women murder and brutalize. I know we were supposed to have left that point, but there it is again. There it is again. Nobody will talk about that though, right? Nobody will talk about that. What is happening in our country today is happening because women who are wicked and unrestrained in their sinfulness are allowed to do it because men are weak and impotent and castrated in every practical sense of the word. And so these evils and atrocities are perpetuated primarily at the behest of whom? Women. But who would talk about women's sins in church? Herodias and her sin implicates her daughter. And we must know that this is always the case as parents. We're never not implicating our children in our sin. You need to know that that's the case. It's not always so obvious, but it is always so potent. You see, our children will be impacted by our sin... And where particular sins persist, they will be implicated in them because they will repeat them. This is how the world works. We will absolutely implicate our children in our sin if we continue in them without repentance because they will do them too. You speak to your husband assertively and disrespectfully, your daughters will do the same to their husbands, making your sin their sin. You've implicated them. There's no way for you not to. Let your wife lead the family, set the tone, determine the culture. Your sons will do the same with their wives, making your sin their sin. You've implicated them. This is never not happening. It may not be happening quite as, uh, quite as uh, I don't know, sharply as you see it in the text before us. But this is how sin operates. That's just one narrative manifestation and example of it. And so as we look at this text, think about your own sins before your own children. And think about how it turned your stomach to look at Herodias and Salome and think, what are the ways that I'm doing that to my child? Because our sin as parents is always implicating our children. It's a fact. This is why repentance, forgiveness, and restoration must be uppermost in our households. They've got to run on it. That we confess and repent of our sin. Otherwise, we are implicating our children in our failures because they will repeat them. But thanks be to God that the first Adam and the old kingdom are all of those things we just talked about. We have a second Adam and a new kingdom and a new history such that those things need not mark, mar, or characterize this place, these people, or our household. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.